Our scripture passage today, we're looking at the first letter of John, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Before we read this, let us uh, pause for a moment in prayer. Good and wonderful Father, as we come to your word here today, Lord, we come to understand and we strive to understand, Lord, what your will is for us. Father, there's so many things that uh, we do not understand as we strive for righteousness, for truth, and for goodness. And Father, we thank you that you've given us your word to guide us and to instruct us. And Father, we, as we come to this word today, we pray that the same spirit that inspired these words would inspire us again, that you would breathe your Holy Spirit upon our hearts and minds that we would hear and that we would read and that we would understand. Lord, bless this holy reading of your holy word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is the first John chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Listen now to the word of the Lord. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've been talking these uh, last few weeks as we're going through the, the first letter of John about becoming heroes. And we all are, as the main character of our own life, we're the hero of our own story. And, and in, in this letter, we're being taught how it is we can become that hero, to be the good hero, to be the champion, the hero that God has made us to be. Now, recently, we've been talking a lot about monsters. Yeah, we've talked about vampires and werewolves and dragons and zombies. Because and, these monsters symbolize sin and evil. And one of the biggest roles of the hero is to fight monsters. And in our life, the biggest role is to overcome sin and overcome evil in our life. Not only the kind that we face, but also the kind that dwells in us. Now, I want to take a turn in a little, little different direction today. Because not only do we have to overcome these evil and the sin and the monsters in our life, but we've got to know how to do it. We've got to be equipped with the power, with the wisdom, with the plan, and able to be those heroes that God calls us to be. And that's what I believe John is teaching us, not only through this letter, but especially today. How can we start to transform and to be that hero? How can we equip ourselves to live that life of Christ? So I want to turn to a different kind of story today, and this is a kind of story you've probably heard many times. It's got different incarnations, and, and I call it a lost prince story. 
And there's a lot of different versions of this lost prince story. Sometimes the prince really is lost. He's, he's wandering away in a, in a wood in a dark land somewhere. Sometimes the prince is lost because he doesn't know he's a prince at all. He's been raised by some other family. The most commonly, you've probably heard the lost prince story and the prince has been cursed or transformed or changed into something different. And so that anyone who looks at him has no idea who he really is. But he's really a prince. Uh, you're familiar all with Beauty and the Beast. That's a typical lost prince story. This prince, by an evil curse, has been transformed into an awful beast. And it's only by the love of a princess or a love of a, of a, of a beautiful, pure woman that he's made into a prince again. But probably one of the oldest versions of this story is called the Frog Prince. And that's one that you probably heard when you're real young and heard it many times. But let me tell you to it one more time. The story of the Frog Prince begins with a young princess. And she is the youngest sister of a family of about four or five other princesses. And they're all beautiful, but none is as beautiful as the youngest. She outshines them all in radiance and in beauty and splendor. But she's also a little bit arrogant. Because she's beautiful and she knows she's beautiful. She's, she's a little bit haughty and she won't consider any of the princely suitors that come her way. She rejects them all. In fact, the only thing she shows favor to is her favorite toy. And it's a little golden ball. Now one day the princess is out in her garden playing with the golden ball, throwing it up in the air. And she misses her catch on one. It bounces off her fingers and it rolls down into a dark, wet well. Princess can't reach the ball, so she begins to sit by the well and she cries, but a frog hears her cries. And a frog hops up and says, Princess, I've heard you crying and it's breaking my heart. What is it that's made you filled with so much sorrow? And the princess says, Dear frog, I've lost my favorite toy. My golden ball has fallen down the well and I can't get it. And the frog said, That's no problem for me. I can get your ball, but only if you promise me something. The princess says, anything, anything, I promise you anything at all, please give me my toy. The frog says, you have to make me your favorite playmate. You have to let me sit by your side. You have to let me eat from your golden plate and drink from your golden cup and sleep next to you on your silken pillow. The princess says, of course, of course, anything you want, I'll give it to you. So the frog agrees, and he goes, and he hops down the wall, and he pulls out the golden ball and spits it right back out to her. The princess is so overjoyed, she grabs the ball and she runs back home with not a thought to the frog at all. Well, later that evening, the frog hops up to the castle and, and knocks on the castle door. And the king opens it up and he sees a frog there. And he asks the frog what he's doing there. And the frog explains the deal he made with the princess. So the king comes and brings the frog in and says, My dear, did you make a bargain to be the favorite playmate of this frog? Princess says, I did, but it's a disgusting old frog. I don't want to do it. The king said, no, dear. A princess always keeps her word. You've got to fulfill what you, your part of the bargain. So the frog hops up on the table with her and wants to eat out of her golden plate. She says, I don't want your disgusting mouth on my golden plate. The king says, you're a princess, and a princess always keeps her word. So she lets the frog eat off of her plate. Then the frog wants to drink from her golden cup. She says, no, I don't want your nasty, disgusting mouth on my golden cup. I'll never be able to drink out of it again. But the king reminds her of her promise, and so she lets the frog drink out of her cup. And then she goes to her room for tonight, and she throws the frog in a corner. But the frog reminds her of her promise. No, remember, you promised to let me sleep next to you on your silken pillow. 
Now, at this point, there's different versions to the story. In some versions to the story, the frog just sleeps on her pillow all night. In some versions of the story, when he wakes up, he then demands a kiss from the princess. In yet another version, the princess gets angry at the frog's haughtiness and throws him against the wall. But in every version of the story, the same thing happens at the end. The frog turns into a prince. He's this beautiful prince and has been the whole time, and he was just cursed by an evil witch to become a frog, and it took the love of a princess, or maybe her anger, depending on the version you read, to turn him into who he really is. Now, of course, the princess falls in love with the prince, and as they do in fairy tales, they live happily ever after. There are two things I want you to notice about the story, and that is how the curse is broken. The prince has been turned into a frog, but that curse eventually gets broken. Now, we all know that really what broke the curse was the love of the princess or the kiss of the princess. And that's what we've come to accept as the story. Love breaks curses. But there was something else here that if we don't pay attention, we might miss an essential ingredient into breaking this curse. See, before the love of the princess or the kiss could save the prince that has been transformed into the frog, before any of that could happen, the prince has got to remember that he is still a prince. The prince has to remember that he is a prince and that he has to hold on to the hope that the curse can be broken before the curse can actually be broken. See, if at any time the prince forgets who he is, if he forgets that he's really a prince and he convinces himself that he's just a frog and he's always going to be a frog and there's no hope for him, then he'll never turn back into a prince again. And he'll be a frog forever. Living in the swamp and the muck and the mire and never becoming who he is supposed to be. Now friends, we are all like that frog. That frog is each and every one of us. We live here and now under a curse. It's the curse of sin. It's the curse of death. It is the curse of a fallen world that is in rebellion against her rightful king. We are broken people. We are sinful people. We, we, we get tempted, and we're all capable of doing terrible things. We're also cursed with this body of mortality and death. No, no, you young people think, well, my body's fine. What are you talking about? Just wait. Just wait. It won't stay that way forever. These bodies get old. They get weak. And every single one of them will die. That's our fate. Each and every one of us, that's the curse that we are under. But one day, one day, and our hope is this, is that this curse will be broken. Both of them will be broken, that we will live one day in a body free of sin, that we will one day live in a world free of sin. We will one day live in a body and a world free of death itself. It is a curse that will be broken by the love of God, will one day overwhelm us and change us forever. But see, until that day comes, we can't forget who we really are. Until that day comes, we cannot forget who we are and who God made us to be. See, the minute we forget that, 
The minute we forget our real identity and who we really are, we become like that frog that's lost hope. We just allow ourselves to become like the world around us. We just allow ourselves to fall into the pit of despair that is all our world around us. And we begin and we will start believing this fiction that we are cursed to be these creatures of sin and death forever. And we stop looking for someone to break this curse. We stop waiting for the hope. One day this curse will be broken. You see, John reminds us today who it is we really are. This is what he says in verse 1. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The great love of the Father says that we should be called the children of God. And he says, indeed, we are called the children of God. That is who we are. That is your real identity. And if God is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords and we are his children, what does that make us? It makes us members of the royal family. All of us. We're children of royalty. That means our real identity, we are a prince or princess, as the case may be. That's who we are, and we can't forget that. And we can never forget that. And, and, and sometimes we forget, I want to say, I won't say we forget, we forget to remember that we're children of God. And I think we've heard it so often, we hear it thousands of times, all the time, you're children of God, you're a child of God, and we hear it so much that we, we forget what, what an exceptional thing it is to be a child of God. And we also hear that, well, that everybody's a child of God, so it doesn't feel that special. I mean, if everyone's special, no one's special, right? If we're all a child of God, then it's not really a great exceptional thing to be a child of God. I want to tell you something that, that, that many of us don't think of. And it, it might sound a little alarming when I tell you this. We're not all children of God. Not everybody's a child of God, at least according to the Bible. Not everybody is a child of God. According to the Bible, some people are actually children of the devil. That's what it says. Now, we, we think that, you know, all of, us, all of us are creatures of God, okay? Every single person in the world is a creature of God. Everyone is made by God. We are all made in the image of God. We are all loved by God. And God wants every single person to become one of his children. He gave the blood of Jesus Christ so that we could become children of God, but we are not all as it stands now, children of God. And John here reminds us that some are children of the devil. I didn't include this verse, but in this chapter, in verse, uh, verse 10, 1 John 3, 10, you can, you can see it for yourself. It says, you can tell who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. It says, the children of God practice righteousness and love one another. And the children of the devil do not. Love and righteousness, which is striving to do the right thing. Those are the mark of the children of God. Evil and hatred. Those are the marks of the children of the devil. I know it's, it's a scary thought to think that, and, and we don't like to think of other people like that. As the children of the devil, it sounds, um, it just sounds kind of real, uh, real arrogant maybe even, and hateful to say that. But, I mean, if we're honest, we look around at our world, sometimes we can't but come to that conclusion 
And if any of us have forgotten, just look at, just remember the atrocities that we've seen coming in from the world this week. Children and babies murdered in cold blood, all to advance a political agenda. If that's not the work of the devil, then I don't know what is. And I'm not saying this to, to judge anyone or accuse anyone or even to frighten anyone. I'm saying this to impress upon us what a gift it is to be called the children of God. Okay, we're not children of God by default. We're not children of God by mere existence. It took the cost of the blood of Jesus Christ for us to be called the children of God. It cost the blood of God's only Son for us to be called the children of God. And if we forget how extraordinary it is that we are called his children. If we forget for a moment how amazing it is that we are his children, then we are tempted to become like the world around us. We forget and just conform to the evil of an evil world. You see, we live in a world full of frogs. We live in a world where we look around and there's nothing but frogs, and we look like everybody else. We dress like everybody else. We, we talk like everybody else. We have the same needs and desires as everybody else. We have many of the same goals and ambitions as everybody else. We live next to people that look like us. We work next to people that work and act and seem just like us. We're all under the same curse. We're all tempted to the same evil. Not a single person is immune to temptation. Our only hope is to remember who we are. Our only hope is to remember we may look like frogs, but we're not. Our only hope for the entire world is the children of God. Because we're doomed without it. But we have to do more than just remember who we are. We also have to remember who we will be. This is what John says in verse 2. It says, dear friends, we are now children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. Think about that. What, what we will be has not yet been seen or known, but what we do know is that when Christ appears, that we shall be like him. He reminds us, right now, we are the children of God, but what we're going to be later has not yet been seen. What we are going to be one day has not appeared. It is not here now. But what he tells us is the way we are now, we're not going to be like this forever. You know, when, when most of the time we think about like eternal life and salvation, we think of it as a, as a, as a change of location, as a shift in geography, that we're here now in this fallen evil earth, and one day we're going to be placed in a wonderful, beautiful paradise called heaven. And that's what we think of eternal life and salvation. It's a change in geography. We're going from one place to another, from earth into heaven. But if we look at scripture and see what it says about salvation, even about heaven, it talks as much about a change of who we are as is a change of where we are. As in salvation and eternal life is not as much a change in location as it is a change in personality. We're not going to just change places. We're going to change people. We're going to be new people. 
look at what it says. A few, give you a few verses. Jesus talked about this. Uh, uh, Matthew thirteen forty three. He said, "When he returns, that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. That we as his children one day are going to shine like the sun in the glory of God." In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And he says we're changed in such a way that our mortal body puts on immortality. That our perishable body puts on imperishability. In Philippians 3, 20, Paul says, Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It says Christ is going to transform this lowly body that we live in now to a glorious body like his. And Peter echoes the same sentiment. 2 Peter 1.4 Through the promises of Christ you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. That we will become partakers as in we will join in the divine nature and be like Jesus Christ himself. That's the promise that God has made us. And in Christ Jesus, all of us will be changed one day. We're not going to be frogs forever. Right? He's going to make us into something glorious. He's going to make us something Christ-like. He's going to transform us into something that looks a lot like him. We can't forget this. We can never forget this. As we go through this life, we can never forget that our ultimate destiny is to be transformed, to be like Christ. Now, when Paul talks about this, he uses the analogy of a seed. And he says you get different seeds, and every seed you get produces some kind of different tree or plant or fruit. But when you look at the seed, it doesn't look like what it's going to be one day. It looks like something completely different. But then when it falls into the ground and dies, it grows up, and it's something truly glorious and different from that, from that little seed. I tried to look for some. I got tons of acorns in my yard, but of course when I looked for them today, they were all gone. Next week, my yard's going to be full of acorns. I did find one pitiful example of an acorn. But look at this acorn. It looks nothing like an oak tree. Nothing. You can't look at this and say, oh, yeah, oh, I can see how it's going to be an oak tree one day. But it will. It can be. This can be an oak tree one day. This has already got the oak tree inside of it. And so one day can transform into something that it doesn't even look like. What Paul reminds us is that we're just seeds now. You and me, we're seeds. We're like this little acorn. And what we're going to be one day, it looks nothing like this, but it's already inside of us. It already lives inside of each of one of us to what God is going to transform us one day. And it's going to be as radical a change as this acorn turning into tree, and it's going to be just as glorious. We cannot forget who we are. We cannot forget who we're going to be one day. Now at this point, I know a lot of critics of our faith in our church will, will look and scoff at this and be like, yeah, oh man, this is just some pie-in-the-sky promise. 
here you are offering, yeah, there's good things, but it comes later. It's after we die. We don't even know if we're going to get that one day. And while you're promising that, we've got real problems here and now. If your faith is so great, if it's so awesome, why isn't it fixing the now problems? Why are you so worried about the future? we got people suffering. we got people dying. we got people starving right now. What is your little vain and empty hope in an afterlife? What is that going to do for us now? And I'll say, okay, you got a good point. you got a good point. You know, is, is it only that we hope in this, this, this glorious afterlife and we don't do anything about the world we live in now? But I'll tell you my answer to that. I think the only people that have ever impacted the world in a positive way are people that have hope in the future. The only people that have ever impacted the world in a good way, in a positive way, are people who have hope in the future. It's people that believe that we are better, people that believe that we are made for, for better, people that believe and know that the world can be a better place and one day will be a better place. And moreover, I've noticed that the most intolerant people, the most hateful people, the most violent people that I've ever known or seen or experienced are people that have no hope in tomorrow. And when they have no hope in tomorrow, they believe they've got to make the world good now. It's got to happen now. We only have this life. We can't wait for an afterlife. We can't wait for God to do his thing. We don't know how long he takes. If we're going to make things good, it's going to make it now. This is the only chance we get. This is the only life we live. Once we're dead, once we're gone, we have no chance to make the world right. And I've lost my chance at having a good life. I don't have time for tolerance. I don't have time for you to learn. I don't have time for you to grow. I don't have time for people to realize their mistakes and to be different. We've got to do it, and we've got to do it now. And if you don't agree with me, I've got to either force you or take you out. Get with the program or get out of the way. That's exactly the kind of thinking that makes people like the Hamas terrorists justified in killing innocent children. They think we've got to fix our problems now. We can't wait for the future hope. We can't wait for a future redemption. We can't wait for vengeance belong to God. We've got to change it, and we've got to change it now. And whatever it takes, that is what we have to do. People will look at the, 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 the terrorists and think the really frightening thing is their radical faith. But I say if they really trusted in God, if they really believed in God and they would believe that he would make all things right. If they really had faith like they claimed they had faith, they would believe that God would never forsake us, nor would he ever betray in his promises. But friends, we have the luxury of waiting. We have the luxury of being tolerant. We have the luxury of forgiveness. We have the luxury of mercy. We have the luxury of kindness because our hope is real. And the only way we can face the horrors of this world, the war, the violence, the evil of evil men, is the hope of our God and His promise that vengeance belongs to Him and He will make all things right. The only way we can bear under this life is frogs. 
is for us to know that we're really children of the King. What we will be has not yet been seen, but we will be like our Lord. If we endure, if we believe, if we remember and never forget who it is we really are. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.